This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Today's episode is with Paul Murdoch, a amateur paleontologist, a fossil hunting guide, and he has um, had years of experience as a paranormal investigator. He would do uh, ghost hunting with his wife. And we get into that. So you got to stick around for like two thirds of this podcast until we get into the ghost hunting. And Paul tells, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say, Paul tells the best ghost story I've ever had someone tell me. And it's an archaeological ghost story about him working at a archaeological dig site and uncovering a crime. And so, wow, totally powerful story. But before we get in that, this whole podcast is going to be about fossils. So if you're interested in ancient natural history, this is an awesome one. I mean, Paul is just an incredible educator and uh, really riveting in the way that he speaks about his passion. And um, so we're going to be learning all about the Chesapeake Bay, its ancient past, and the creatures um, that have called the bay their home. If you're interested in um, checking out more about Paul, you can go to his website, which is chaptours.org. His business is called Chesapeake Heritage and Paleontology Tours. So if you like what you hear in this podcast and you're in the Maryland, Virginia, um, maybe DC area, and you're interested in going out on a tour with him, we're going to go on one because after this podcast, it's obvious how great of a of a guide he is, even though we haven't gone on a tour yet. But if you're interested, go and reach out over there. And uh, I'm assuming that even on one tour, you're going to be able to find at least something that um, will connect you to 15 million years ago. So this is the first of at least four Chesapeake Bay-themed episodes. It's going to be at least the beginning of the summer. Maybe it'll become extended. But basically, I've been working for like three months on a big art project painting um, the side of a building in the closest town that we live in, Front Royal, Virginia. I've been doing a big mural, and I finally wrapped up the job. Vivian, my girlfriend, she has been doing a big ceramics gig for a um, renowned local restaurant. So we both just finished these big gigs and we we're like, let's take a vacation. She is from New Zealand and she was really pining for the sea. So I thought, well, you know, as a kid, I'd go down to Chesapeake, uh, excuse me, as a kid, I'd go to Chincoteague, um, which looks out into the Atlantic Ocean, but it's, you know, part, it's on the Eastern shore. And so I thought, well, why don't we do a Chesapeake Bay themed four or five day vacation? And I'm going to tell a story about our trip, which has everything to do with today's guest. But um, basically, 
just starting to learn before we headed out on our trip, just learning about the history of the bay, the culture around the bay, I've become fascinated by it. So I've decided to make the the series of this podcast all about the bay. So this is the first episode with a fossil hunter. The next one coming up is with a living historian where we're going to learn all about the pirates of the Chesapeake Bay. I had no idea, but supposedly the pirates would be, you know, rambling around in the Caribbean and then in their summers they would spend it in the Chesapeake Bay. They'd be raiding all these English ships. So we're going to get into that and that, I mean, how exciting is that? Um, and so I started talking to this living historian and on the phone, he told me that he's got a treasure story. So man, I can't, I said, stop, whatever you're telling me, stop. Cause you're going to tell it on the podcast. Um, we're going to be speaking with the captain of a skipjack and he is a waterman and a waterman is a term for someone who works on the water in the Chesapeake Bay. So he's the captain of the, I believe it's the oldest commercial vessel on the bay. So he's still um, dredging for oysters. I think he still does crabbing and uh, all of this stuff, this, this, um, these historical, this historical commerce, which is still happening today. And he's doing it in this old school style. And I talked to him on the phone and this guy's got this amazing, um, uh, Chesapeake Bay accent because different islands have their own dialect. And, uh, he started telling me about, you know, pulling up, um, pirate dice made of bone out of the bay. And he had started telling me ghost stories from the Eastern shore. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to come down. And lastly, the one that we have kind of scheduled is going to be with a folk artist, Danny Doty. And, uh, we went down to his studio and we had um, an, uh, truly a soul-shaking conversation with this artist. He has grown up in a very isolated town down there. And while I um, normally like to see rural life and country life and um, in a very romantic way, his experience has been nothing short of tragic and nightmarish. And uh, I've actually never heard a personal story so dark as his. So, um, he's going to share about growing, growing up in his, um, his burden of growing up and how he's transformed his suffering into these truly radiant paintings. And his paintings kind of show this, um, divine or angelic version of rural life, um, filled with the African-American women who, in his words, saved his life. So if I can keep going with the Chesapeake Bay as a theme, you know, there's a um, a decoy carver that I wanted to interview. He's not going to be available till later in the year, um, but uh, supposedly decoy carving is considered the first and truly indigenous, and by that um, meaning coming from uh, the indigenous American folk art. Supposedly all other folk art in America has stems to Europe, I'm assuming, whereas supposedly duck decoy carving is truly American, originating um, when the settlers got here. They were inspired by the Native Americans because Native Americans were making decoys out of reeds and out of uh, actually preserved skins for hunting. And um, then there started to be this wood carving 
by the the first settlers here. And now it's become quite a folk art. And so there's a guy I really want to talk to about that. Um, let's see. Oh, of course, I want to interview someone maybe in down in Jamestown to speak about the history of the um, Native Americans in the area. You know, the Pocahontas story stems from the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, maybe I could even find someone who's in one of the, in one of the tribes today and kind of hear their perspective. So it, the Chesapeake Bay just seems like it's going to be a, a, as the Chesapeake is a bounty of aquatic life the, and food today, it also is seemingly like a bounty of inspiration for podcast topics. So we decided to take this little vacation and, um, my girlfriend has been more and more interested in archaeology and paleontology. And she's been sharing stuff to me that she's been learning um, while doing research for her artwork about, um, you know, ancient Egypt and, and ancient Greece and beyond and, and all sorts of stuff like that. So I thought um, for Christmas, her present was going to be, let's go on a fossil hunting vacation. So we blended that into this trip. And there's an area within two hours of where we live, which is renowned for fossil hunting. And when you go there, um, there's a state park you can go to. Um, there are a handful of areas that are public. And it's kind of known that you have a good chance of finding a fossilized shark tooth. So we went down there and it was a pretty cold morning. Um, this was early May. And uh, we put on my waders that I have for trapping and a borrowed pair of waders. We put those on and we got out into the bay because you had to go around some fallen trees um, along this cliffside and the weather was gray and cold and the water, you know, there were le legitimate little waves crashing up against the shore. And with our waders, we were able to go further along the shoreline than I'm assuming the average Joe who just goes down to beachcomb. And we spent the whole afternoon down there and, you know, immediately you're finding shells, which you'll hear in this podcast. The, um, all of these shells are basically from the Miocene period. They're, you know, eight to 20 some million years old. So we're down there for hours finding cool stuff here and there, no shark teeth. And um, there's an area where there, there's like a slide, like where clay has fallen from this cliff and it's down into the surf. And Vivian looks down and she shrieks. And she sees a little bit of black coming out of this clay and she kind of wears it away and, and it, she's got a vertebrae in her hands. And I mean, this thing is, this thing is softball sized and, um, she immediately yells out whale and that's just her intuitive feeling whale. And I mean, to me, I, I don't know very much about this topic until we started researching all about it. Um, so I'm just like, okay, wow, like whatever you found, wow. And she is just blown away. It's obvious it's a fossil because of the blackness of it. Um, and the, at, the, at that moment, we've got a mystery in our hands, even though she has this feeling that it's a whale. And I just couldn't believe this for our first ever fossil hunt. And we found a bunch of other really cool stuff, but that was very obviously the prize, the treasure. The next morning, we went to the Calvert Marine Museum, where we actually asked if there was a paleontologist there that we could speak to so we could have our piece ID'd. And um, we were able to speak with Victor over there. We the, Shout out to Victor. Thank you. Um, and he looked at what we had, and he told Vivian that what she found was a um, 
lower lumbar vertebrae from a juvenile extinct baleen whale. And that is from the Miocene period. And I mean, to her, this is a dream come true because her heroes as a kid were uh, Indiana Jones and Tomb Raider. And in the spirit of Indiana Jones, Vivian said to Victor at the museum, is this something that you guys need for the museum? And he kind of laughed and uh, I guess maybe thought that that was kind of charming and nice of us to offer. But fortunately, uh, we got to keep it. And so we were just blown away. And this really stuck with me. Um, And I couldn't stop thinking about it for days. So bear with me on this kind of kooky thought, this kooky idea here. But by having in our possession, and now this is going to be like a token in our home, um, to have this object that represents such a profound space of time really had, um, it really had a deep effect on me. And so I was just kind of meandering on the internet of different time periods. And so this whale that she found is somewhere in the eight to 20 million years old. So we didn't break away from apes until it says online somewhere in the, in the 4 million, maybe five, 6 million years ago. So back when this whale was alive, there was no such thing as human beings. And these whales came, as you'll hear later in this podcast, these whales came from creatures that in an earlier time period were something like dogs, that were like land-like dogs that returned to the ocean. And for a long time, these whales uh, kind of had legs. They were, they were kind of these kind of amphibious versions of a whale until what we have today. Um, So just the idea of the evolution of things. So I'm thinking if this whale was out there and it couldn't possibly conceive what would come of an ape, which we are today, and, and Vivian, a human, finding this bone, then what in eight million years from now could find our bones? Like, what could it be? I mean, could something evolve from a lizard or of a cat or our pet dog? Could something of such intelligence in 8 million years evolve out of our cat that finds us, our bones, in 8 million years and finds it of interest? So I know that's a bit of a kooky thought, but it has consumed me. Well, Paul is an incredible guest, so I'll shut up and let's get into learning all about the Miocene era and the glory of the Chesapeake Bay. So we're in Calvert County, Maryland. It's a peninsula. Uh, On the um, eastern side is the Chesapeake Bay. On the western side is the Patuxent River, and maybe about 15 miles south of here is when uh, the Patuxent River does dump out uh, into the Chesapeake. Down there is the uh, 
uh, naval station. So if people remember the John Clan- um, Tom Clancy novels, um, he does a lot of uh, talk about sub and things like that. Well, that is the base he's describing in a bunch of his novels. Hmm. Um, if you're going, if you did a straight shot over uh, to the eastern shore of Maryland, we're pretty much uh, right in line with Ocean City, New Jersey. I'm sorry, Maryland, Ocean mm-hmm. City, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So this has historically uh, been a very rural area. Um, there still are um, a lot of farming going on down here. You notice as you drive down, basically once you get into Calvert County, there are no uh, billboards. They really want to keep it rural. They have town centers that are set up about seven, eight miles apart, and in between is nothing but a farmer's field, whether it's corn or soybean or uh, what is that called? Uh, it's that small plant, uh, gum. I forget the name of it. Uh, but Sorghum. Sorghum. That's it. Yep. You'll see that. Man, um, that's cool. Very Southern. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, a I was saying that on our way here, on my way here, that um, it's just very impressive to only be like 45 minutes from Washington, D.C., and it's like extremely rural right here. It is, and that's a conflux. So you have a lot of haves and you have a lot of have-nots down mm. here. You've got a lot of old money. Mm. Uh, you have a lot of big money. So it's it's really kind of a strange place. you got a you got a very big mix of have and have-nots. Most of these uh, private communities like the one we're in is maybe 50-50 of people living here full-time and, and the other it being a vacation home or second home or Airbnb or some other kind of hmm. you know, investment property. So um, it's it's weird. It's a, it's a little weird. You know, the thing I complain about with our area here is we almost cannot keep a restaurant of any kind in the town here, uh, but we have three liquor stores and one bar. Mm. So it's, <laughs> it's just a little strange. And you got to go about 20 minutes for everything. And that turns into 20 minutes out, 10 minutes there, 20 oh, minutes yeah, back. That's like how I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. So you, Okay. So we're in your office and I'm here because you're a fossil hunter. Do you consider yourself? Is that how you word it? Um, Amateur paleontologist, okay, cool. fossil hunter. Cool. Yep. And we are surrounded by fossils that you found. So the whole theme of this podcast is obviously going to be fossils. So it would be cool at some point to go over some stuff here in your office. Like right okay. now I'm sitting, uh, I would say four inches from my mouse is a um, megalodon tooth from, you know, 20 million years. Well, give or take. So that <laughs> was something a, a friend gave me. But, but before we get into that, though, yeah. let's, because we just kind of, you gave us a little synopsis of this region. So let's get right in the fossils. Okay. Why is this a great spot for fossils? Uh, from the little that I've been studying, because we came here to fossil hunt, because my girlfriend's super interested in this, okay. it appears, and feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, that this is one of the best spots on the East Coast for fossil hunting. Um, I would agree with that. So, so why? What makes this area so great is there's a, a very large expanse area uh, and uh, the main reason is, is it's it's naturally eroding. So the reason why is long and complex. It involves roughly 35 million years of of natural history. And I'm not just saying, you know, as in marine history, it's natural history. So if there wasn't the uh, boloid or some people call it a comet impact off of Norfolk, that would have reshaped all the rivers around you, here. Can, so I saw that in a documentary, mm-hmm. that the reason the Chesapeake Bay is shaped this way is it's gotten nailed by a comet. Yes. Can you 
uh, elaborate on that, on that a little bit? Because oh, I found that okay. extremely interesting. So um, what's basically happened is a comet crashed off of Norfolk around 35 million years ago, and it, it, it impacted with such great force that if you're looking on a map of the eastern United States, you'll notice that almost all the major rivers uh, go from a, a northwest to dumping out at a southeast. That doesn't happen here. It hit with such force that it set out these shock waves and ripples that actually redirected all the rivers to empty up you know, a sharp turn back to the northeast. So that wow. shock wave um, you know, is still part of the reason why we have the Chesapeake Bay today. Um, wow. It fractured the water tables down there at Norfolk, so they do not have fresh water at Norfolk. All, all, hmm. all, their, under, all, all their underground aquifers were, were fractured, and then the salt water came in. Um, so they've got to ship in their water, or they've got to, to put in desalination plants. Even as little as less than 20 years ago, uh, there's still a, a, the Powhatan Indian Nation still down there. Powhatan, mm -hmm. or Powhatan, however you want to say it. Uh, that's also... Um, the namesake of Matawaka here, mm. uh, Pocahontas is, um, was Poetan, and her name was Matawaka or Matoka. Oh, um, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So what the, what you just referenced is a campsite where my girlfriend and I stayed, where we yeah. overlooked the bay. Yep. So it's a very popular campsite. People have come here for years. Odds are, if you did a ge geology course on the East Coast, you went there to do some of your field work. Uh, but where I was getting at was as little as t 20 years ago, uh, the city down there tried to sue the Poetans. Uh, or Powhatans off of their land to steal their water. Mm. So Dark. it's yeah, it's become <laughs> you know people think all that's behind us and it's not. Wow. So you know you still have that going on. You still have you know pipelines going through Indian lands and you got all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was the first thing that started to develop. Uh, the second thing was that redirect caused the eastern shore to actually stay sort of stabilized. It redirected the Susquehanna River, and that's really. All that the Chesapeake Bay is is the swollen Susquehanna River. Hmm. So at certain points of time, uh, that might have been just reduced to a channel, and then the river is going directly out to the sea. Well, now uh, we do have water rising, and it's been a stabilized kind of bay for several thousand years now. Uh, but in the past, when you go back to like twenty some million years ago, uh, there were there were almost no water at either polis. There was hmm. no ice. It was all water in the ocean. So this became way more than just an embayment. This was kind of an inland sea. Hmm. And this, uh, through the fossil deposits, went all the way out to Richmond. So there are some places, uh, the Virginia Museum of Natural History has their Carmel Church Quarry, which is off of uh, exit 104 of Route 95. And um, it, there's well fossils to be found there. You're saying that the water was going all the way to Richmond? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so this was a huge embayment, and, and the, the the different kinds uh, of of depth of the water, uh, the heat of the water, you know, basically formed these layers that we see here. But first, you had to have that impact that kind of redirected the rivers, that redirected how things are done here. Uh, what really helped develop the cliffs uh, was the last ice age. So when you had that mile plus thick of ice uh, that stalled out to the north of here, what it so about when is that? Uh, I think that was about 10 to 20. I'm not great on my geological Thousand times. or million? Thousand. Thousand. So what that did was as that mile-long sheet of ice is coming, it's pushing up the land in front of it. And it's actually forcing ripples to go. And that's what we have here with Calvert Cliffs. So that's mm. when you see how it kind of undulates up and down, up and down. 
uh, that's what kind of pushed all these marine sediments up a little bit further. So now that they are actively eroding. And what's keeping them eroding at a kind of just a straight cliff face is the protection that the eastern shore provides. So mm. if the eastern shore wasn't there, you would oh, have protection from the from just the sea from environment. From just the sea waves. So here, wow. you know, that that you know, people will tell you if you've been out on the bay, it can be beautifully flat calm and two minutes, you know, two hours later, uh, you're dealing with white caps and gale warnings and, and it, it can be a dangerous spot. The bay makes its own weather due to how shallow it is and how warm the water gets. Uh, but waves don't usually get three to four feet hmm. or more because they have a small space to build up. You know, the, the water here, the average water depth is only 22 feet. Now, the channel gets over 120, but the average water depth across the whole Chesapeake is 22. Well, when you have that eastern shore blocking the, the Atlantic from coming in here, you're not getting 7-foot, 10-foot hmm. big waves. So it's allowing these cliffs to just slowly to keep eroding, so, you know, straight up and down, and that's where the fossils are coming out of either the cliffs themselves or the layers that are out in front of the cliffs because all that is marine so for me to just fully understand as a complete layman the reason it's such a great spot is because the erosion is accessible and it's kind of a controlled erosion over yep. long periods of time yep so okay. why, why the fossils are, are are so good here is the marine fossils first of all so, you know, uh, the step to become a fossil is you've got to got to die, you've got to become buried, uh, you've got to have something not eat you or, or, or tear through you. Uh, 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 oxygen will cause a, a quick decay. Hmm. But when you're already in a marine environment, you just naturally float down to the bottom and then you get covered up with stuff. So marine fossils get covered and, and created a lot quicker than something on the land. So that's why most of the land fossils are found, you know, in stream banks or something else where there's a flooding event. Oh, you know, something had to have happened to bury them. It just, you know, if you're so laying either out. So like in a bog or in, in oh, sediment? Uh, is yep, like, how, like a river, okay. a river flood, something like that. Now, now they can happen out where something collapses on them. Mm. But yeah, it's got to be something where you're covered rather quickly. And most of the time that's, that's, that's water providing that. Um, so you've got a lot of things here. You've got a very long period of time uh, going on here. What's really cool about this is most of these layers are continuous. And, and what I mean by that is uh, a lot of times uh, there's a drastic event in between these changes and an area can get scrubbed off. And then we hmm. call that a lag layer, meaning, hey, all the smaller things have gotten pulled off and the lag is left behind those heavier things. Hmm. Uh, I think there's maybe only one or two potential lag deposits along the whole Calvert Cliffs here. So we talk about, you know, the Calvert Cliffs being 30 miles. Um, well, yeah, as the crow flies, you have 30 miles. But as for uh, actual eroding uh, pieces of property, you probably only have seven or eight miles worth mm. where it's actually cliff mm. that's eroding. Now, what's happening is all of this was once covered by an ocean. So think of the sand on the beach is like one of those old green scrubbies in your sink. So mm -hmm. every wave is pushing that sand around and scrubbing whatever's underneath. And mm. what underneath is, you know, um, some kind of ancient marine deposit. And these deposits here are really soft. Mm. And when we talk about geology or rock units, it's usually rock. These are all clay, silty sand. Mm. Very um, easy uh, to, to erode. 
So that sand erosion is going to pull away all that material and then leave behind the heavier things, the bones, the teeth. It will erode them down too. Yeah, interesting. But it will expose them hmm. before they before they get deteriorated and eroded. So, you know, that's the big reason why there, there is so much here is just uh, the continuous of it. Um, the There's roughly over 10 million years, give or take, of a whole um, – ecosystem being preserved and each one of these layers in here is preserving its own minor ecosystem hmm. so the water is either a little deep or a little shallow or a little warm or a little out offshore um the neat thing about these layers is that they're roughly a couple hundred thousand years we, we tell people it's maybe a half a million year each layer hmm. that's not entirely accurate but it's close um mammals we evolve every million or two million years so you go from one beach and then, you know, there's going to be a lot of sand or beach going to the next beach where the cliffs pop up. Well, now you're another 2 million years either back in time or closer to our time. To totally different ecosystems. Mm. You will not find the same mammals, the same whales, the same mm. dolphins at that beach that you will at the other. They've been replaced. You will find a lot of the same sharks, but even they, even they are um, changing because either the water depth, a bigger shark can't be in shallow water. And if you're at a place where it is shallow, you're not going to find a whole lot of bigger shark teeth, megs, makos. Um, but where it's a deeper water and you find bigger whale bones, well, then, yeah, you probably are going to find a bigger shark. Mm. So. so that was awesome. Now let's, from my understanding, the fossils here are mainly or totally of the Miocene period? Yes. And so can... I had to go look at what the hell that means. So what is the Miocene period? And also for someone that doesn't have too much knowledge regarding ancient creatures, mm -hmm. like can you kind of put the Miocene in an easy way to understand like where it is in, in geological history, mm -hmm. I guess? All right. You know, like here are dinosaurs, here are human beings. Where's the Miocene period okay. in there? Uh, so dinosaurs died out uh, roughly 66, 65 million years ago. Okay. Uh, there are dinosaurs in Maryland. Uh, very rarely do you find actual dinosaur bones. If you do, it's usually teeth. But most of all, the most common dinosaur fossil here is a trace fossil. It's, it's a footprint. And I actually have one of those Describe the trace fossil because I thought that was, this was very cool. Okay. So a trace fossil. So technically a fossil, the definition is, is anything that's more than 10,000 years old that preserves a trace of life. Hmm. So most people think of of things as teeth and bones. Uh, but it can be an imprint. It can be a leaf print. It could be a, a footprint. Uh, it could even be a preserved track in mud of, a, of a, a snail or a worm. So a fossil is something that leaves behind. And that's behind, called a trace fossil. And that's a trace fossil. We found, so in that clay along the cliffs, we found, or I found a chunk of clay with a beautiful imprint of like a shell. Yes. Like a, like a clam or something. Yes. And so, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, so there are there is a layer here along the cliffs where it went from a deeper water and a lot of the, the ones in that layer are more of a scallop rather than a clam. So scallops are more deep water, clams are more fresh water. Mm, and apparently enough. there was a big regression. It's meaning that the sea went out and these were laid exposed for quite some time. So what happens is uh, the, the impression or trace of that fossil is there, but the shell, the animal itself, has degraded due to the presence of oxygen and other factors. Mm. And then all that you're left with is the imprint or trace of that fossil. The cool thing about those uh, is they seem to hold up a mm. lot better mm. than if you put that actual shell uh, outside. If you put the shell outside, it's going to break down over time. Some mm. of these trace fossils 
that you find here are beautiful and the colorization due, due to the um, um, iron in, iron and other mineral deposits in there, they look great out, yeah. out like a rock garden or something That's like cool. that. That's cool. So, yeah. So, yeah, I derailed you. So, so back to dinosaurs in the Miocene period. Ah, okay. So, Miocene starts technically. So, there's another period in between. Uh, after the dinosaurs, there's uh, called the Age of Mammals. And then, then there's the Oligocene, which stops at about, I think it starts at around 32 million years. I, I should have looked all this up. Miocene, oh, Miocene starts at around 22 million years mm -hmm. and then stops at roughly around 8 to 10. Mm. Um, so Maryland here, where we're at in Calvert Cliffs, preserves a, a great deal of the Miocene, home, almost all of it. Um, we are missing the tail end of it. Um, then there were some other uh, units uh, that are actually preserved over in Virginia. The, the uh, um, what is that called? There's the Yorktown, and there, there's another layer uh, before that that is preserved over on the Potomac River. It's a lag deposit. The mm. name just escapes me right now. But Yorktown, um, it, it, that's where the bigger megs mm. That's where megs that we pretty sure reach their maximum size. What is meg? A megalodon? Megalodon. Though. Okay. Yeah. And a megalodon, for those who don't know, it's a giant shark? Yes. Yeah. So okay. it's a giant shark, probably the largest shark that, that ever lived. Uh, originally, their teeth, when they were found in Italy, mm. uh, were thought to be, they called them dragon tongue stones because mm. they thought they were giant fangs off of a big snake. Oh, my God. So over Or a time, dragon. Yeah. Wow. We were watching this documentary about salamanders, which have incredible like medieval folklore. Mm -hmm. And there was a salamander that was all white that would um, live in these caves in, in maybe Italy, somewhere in medieval Europe. And every once in a while, one of these salamanders would wash out of the cave mm -hmm. and the medieval villagers thought that they were baby dragons. <laughs> so I love, I actually did want to ask that at some point, maybe we can loop back around. If you have any knowledge of how ancient people, what they might've thought, what did the Native Americans or, you know, before we understood it through the, I guess, scientific framework, I'm so curious, how did ancient people, um, what was their experience or thoughts when they found these things? I'm so curious about that. So when Captain Smith did come up the, through the Chesapeake, uh, and I believe he made three trips. What what years? Here we. This is sixteen. This is sixteen hundred. You mean late. John Smith? John Smith, right? Yeah, Captain, the Pocahontas is, story. Yes. What okay. did I say? No, you said Smith. Okay. I just wasn't sure that we were talking <laughs> about the same thing. Yes. So when he actually came up uh, through here, uh, he did see bones in the cliffs and, no and, and claimed to have, you know, said that there were, there were giants and monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So wow. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting that quote exactly hundred percent, but that's basically what he said wow. was, you know, there, there are some monsters here, uh, wow. because you could, he could see them in, in, in the cliff, um, and possibly laying out on the beach. Cause I mean, um, we're kind of at a, a later stage of, of collecting. Now people know about this. Um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, you, you could find a lot more stuff. There weren't a lot of people that were actually interested in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I blame Sue. So Sue, the T-Rex, I think really got mm. people. What's that? Oh, uh, so Sue was, um, Sue is named after Sue Hendricks. Mm. She found, uh, one of the most complete T-Rexes ever found. And mm. it got into a very litigious, 
uh, court battle. Was Mc- this out west? Yeah, mm. McDonald's ended up buying it, and now it's on no on display at the Field Museum. But it basically, you know, there were these guys who went out and fossil hunted, and they would make handshake deals with ranchers, and mm-hmm. you know, would pay you know kind of more than what the average amount would be. But then that was the deal if they found something that was theirs. So it's the risk they took. Um, and then what happened is uh, they actually found this nearly complete T Rex, and the rancher welched on the on the handshake deal, even though he cashed the check. Hmm. Uh, he waltzed on the deal, and it ended up. Uh, there's a whole book written about it. The hmm. guy actually went to jail because they, 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 whether his records were inaccurate or wh- or whether he was intentionally deceptive, he ended up having fossils, I believe, in his um, collection that he was selling. That was from BLM, BLM land, Borough Land Management out hmm. west, and it, it was nasty. It was this huge hmm. thing, and then eventually. Um, uh, McDonald's bought it and then donated it, but I think mm. the skeleton at the time went for like, God, I forget how many millions of dollars. But it really awakened people's so eyes. So this sparked a fossil hunting craze. Yes, and mm. now you know some of the same stuff is going. Uh, Montana uh, Supreme Court just decided. Now again, this is Montana, so this does not have anything to do with the rest of the United States. But the Montana Montana Supreme Court just decided that fossils are fossils. They are not. Um, uh, minerals. So somebody was actually trying to say that, well, I sold the land, but I didn't sell the mineral rights. So when they found this, it was actually a battling dinosaur, you know, a meat eater and a, a plant eater, in, you know, preserved, embraced in apparent combat. Um, yeah, he wanted that back because he said he had mineral rights. Oh, so it went all the way to the Montana Supreme Supreme Court. And some of the people around here are still trying to do that, Fat trying to say, say that, oh, you know, it's a mineral, it's mine. Wow. So yeah, it's... It's gotten really weird, but in the past, um, it, it was no big deal to go out here and, and get like the one of these little containers just full of small teeth. I can't tell you the last time I was able to uh, to go out and fill a container of just uh, shark's teeth. But these were traded. Uh, shark's teeth have been found in campsites all the way up in Michigan. Okay, well, I do want to keep going with Miocene mm-hmm. on the education level because I think it's fascinating. Okay, so. Let's definitely get back to that. But while we're on this uh, conversation, because you're kind of getting into fossil hunting. And so I've read a bunch of your articles. Mm-hmm. We watched a bunch of fossil hunting documentaries. Okay. I'm interested in all these different types of outdoor things. Um, certainly, I'm enjoying the fossil hunting because it has an element of hunting hunting, which yeah. I do, where you're trying to find something. And uh, there's a quest element. Yeah, it's kind and, of treasure hunting. Right, treasure yep. hunting. So, um, but what I found very fascinating is in the culture of fossil hunting, there seems to be this openness to share locations. You know, even in reading your article, it says where these things are found, mm-hmm. which I found shocking because with hunting, hunting, the culture is you don't tell someone where you hunted that deer. Or you might say the region, you might say it was in George Washington National Forest, but you wouldn't publicize where you had your success because there's just a um, the etiquette of hunting is that you don't ask those kind of questions, that it takes a lot of effort to find these things, it and it takes a lot of woodsman skills, woodswoman, woodsperson skills. So um, you it would be rude. But it seems with the fossil hunting culture, it seems very open. And even in watching this documentary with these guys that were um, there in Alberta and they work with the museum, they even just in this public documentary, they're kind of, seems like they're kind of um, 
giving permission in a way for they say like we want people to find stuff and so i thought huh how interesting and then i hear you are saying you can't really find so much anymore so what is your personal opinion i know in your articles you do address some uh behavior that would be that you would deem inappropriate yeah. um and my framework of understanding that is you know we've gotten in with the caving community where we live in front oh, row okay. virginia spelunking yeah spelunking so that's that's what I wanted to say. Um, t- back to etiquette in these outdoor cultures, spelunking to them. I thought, oh, spelunking, that's the coolest word ever. I'm a spelunker. <laughs> Turns out spelunking is actually means a caver is someone who's doing it in a very um, uh, mature and um, what's the Every right? time you enter a cave, you're disturbing the habitat. Right. So a caver is someone who's doing it in a uh, with a lot of... Uh, education and rules and conservation minded. A spelunker mm-hmm. is someone who's kind of haphazardly going in there, not following rules, mm. probably mistreating the cave. So it seems as though in the fossil hunting community, there's an etiquette. So could you elaborate? I, I just asked a lot of questions. No, that's fine. But um, so, do you get where I'm going? Yes. So it, it, it is a catch 22. So uh, almost, let's say close to 90% of finds that are in museums are due to amateurs. Wow. So there is a- 90. Over 90. Over 90. So those are due to people who are just avocational, you know, like myself. And yeah, you've spent a lot of time um, teaching yourself what to look for, uh, trying to figure out, you know, um, possibly new locations. You know, when you're on the Chesapeake Bay, there are no hidden locations. You're, you're right- there, there's, you know, everything's exposed. The problem with the Chesapeake Bay is being able to access those locations. And so many of these are now either private communities or, uh, I mean, the biggest cliff owner here is the Calvert Cliffs Nuclear Power Plant. Hmm. So, you know. Um, Radioactive fossils. <laughs> we, we know the stuff is there. We, we just have a very hard time getting to the site. Uh, the the material there makes it very hard to get in close by with a boat. So, you know, we talked earlier about some of these big pieces of ironstone. Well, they're out there in the water. You hit one of them with one of these little boats and you need a literal boat, a small boat to get in that close because of the amount of uh, sandbars and everything there, you you crack your boat open down there. You're, you're easily a mile from anybody. Mm -hmm. And the closest, you know, your choice is either go to the nuclear power plant, probably get arrested, or to walk to somebody else's house who owns a very expensive house with a water view who's going to be very upset that now you're now trying to make it his problem Mm -hmm. or her problem. Um, So my view on it is, um, and it's a complicated view, and even the, uh, um, they do a journal every year. Uh, The Society of Paleontologists struggles with this. Hmm. Um, you know, how much do you want to involve the avocational people? And there are some people who have taken very hard sides on both of that, both sides of this. Um, my view is people are going to be doing it anyway. Hmm. So you might as well try to educate them as best as possible on things. So, uh, we're part, I'm a, Oh, what would you call that? An admin uh, of a of a popular group, Facebook group down here, and we basically put that exact question out there. You know, this week, um, you know, pe- people would join our Facebook club and then say, "Where where can I go? Where's the best spot?" Mm-hmm. Well, we will tell you where you can go, 
Mm. Um, but a lot of us are spending a tremendous amount of time, exactly. you know, trying to figure out, you know, uh, e- even the wind direction can have an influence on what's the best mm. beach to go to that day. Um, Another, as the examples I gave you, also with like mushroom hunters, you don't just ask a morel hunter, where, well, where's your spot? Where do yeah. you go? It's just inappropriate. Yeah. So here's my inappropriate answer. You never tell <laughs> a single white male where the best place to fossil hunt is. It, it's, it, it was a piece of advice given me to, uh, by a collector who's been involved with this much longer than me. You tell somebody who, who's unemployed, who has free time, where a good place to go is, and they will probably destroy it within a month. Hmm. And then it's going to take nature years uh, to recover from that, plus whatever damage you've done there. Now, fortunately... Um, you know, the damage that's done is, you know, since a lot of people misunderstand um, the the pollution that can happen in the bay. Well, if you're digging in the cliff or, or digging something out of the, the, the clay at the bottom, you're just putting back into the bay organics that were originally deposited from this bay. You know, the real harm um, with pollution uh, is the, the topsoil stuff, the, mm. the chemicals, um, the... the um, uh, farming organics, when they come into the bay, then then you're dealing with problems. Then that's promoting algae blooms and other things mm. and dead zones. So, you know, does digging in the bay itself cause an issue? Not really. Uh, but it's somebody's private property. So mm. when I'm out on a tour, I give people an analogy of like, hey, let's say you enjoy your walking around um, your, your community, you're out taking a dog for the walk, and then you notice somebody's beautiful tulips in their yard. You think, wow, they're beautiful. And mm-hmm. you go in there and you pick a couple for yourself. That's kind of what you're doing down here if you're mm-hmm. walking along the cliff and then seeing something and then pulling it out. Mm-hmm. Can you do it? Yeah. Should you do it? No. It's mm-hmm. not yours. It's mm-hmm. somebody's private property. Um, but um, and that's kind of why I started the business was to kind of get people to understand you know, what they can find, how they can find it, where you can go to, but then the etiquette around it too. So so elaborate on that because in your articles, when you find something, first of all, you're not supposed to be digging in soil. Yeah, no. The, the proper etiquette is you find stuff in the water that's washed out on its own. Yes. And then if you do find something that looks promising, mm-hmm. you elaborate. Yeah, so basically- if What do you do? Uh, basically, I contact the Calvert Marine Museum. Now, I'm lucky that over the years I've built up contacts that, you know, so depending on where I'm at, whether I'm contacting Smithsonian, the Virginia Museum, the Natural History, whatever. But most of my uh, hunting now is down here at the Calvert Marine Museum. Uh, I reach out to them, let them know, hey, I, I think this is what's going on. Um, so it becomes rather <sighs> complicated. It's not the best word. But if we do spot something in the cliff, um, the museum... Us, when I say us, I mean me, the museum. I'm also the president of the Fossil Club down there. So I am privy to some other information that Joe Schmo might not be. So right now we're really struggling with space. We've got all these incredible fossils and we are running Storage out of space. Uh, yes. Mm, uh, and, at the museum. Uh, and, you know, uh, these fossils are 10, 15, 20 million years old. You, you think of them as stone. Well, we're finding out that they're not. You know, things we were taught as kids, like, oh, it's all replaced. It's now, you know, inorganic. It's not true. Uh, You need to really have a specialized environment. You need to spend a tremendous amount of time preparing these things, uh, adding preservatives to them, uh, building uh, specialized plaster jackets to hold of them. And then you're keeping them in an environment that's, you know, uh, a steady temperature, a low humidity. Because they'll deteriorate. Yes. Wow. So we're getting a little more picky. 
Hmm. So, you know, with it, what they bring into the collection, what we're going to try to even quarry into the collection. Mm. So, um, you know, now uh, a lot of the times, you know, you, what you see is a, a mass of bones sticking out, ribs or vertebra. Um, they're they're cool. Don't get me wrong; they're very cool, and they can still tell a story. They might still have bite marks on it. They might have shown uh, a fracture that's now healed, or maybe they're, they're arthritic. They get arthritis just like we do. Mm. So the, these bones have stories to tell. But if we're looking for something that's potentially going to tell a species level, that's in the skull, and it's not in the cool part of the skull, which is the front with the teeth and all that. It's the back third. So the back third of the skull, uh, skull is where the ear bones would be, the nasals would be where the connection of the jaw would be. Uh, and that's where really science is focused on, on that developmental part of the of, of the animal to be able to tell, okay, what species is it, if not species family. So we're primarily looking for skulls. Good news, skulls usually the biggest piece of bone. Mm. Bad news, uh, especially with some of these dolphins and whales, is they get incredibly thin, the, the front two thirds. Mm. So they're usually poorly preserved. Mm. So it's one of these things where we just want to keep an eye on some of these things. So, you know, you spot a piece of bone, you let it go. But if you realize, okay, this is the back of the skull or it's something a little more different, then maybe we will come out. And then the museum might still even decide, mm, we, we, we might wait on this. And we have, um, we, the museum has not quarried out specimens because we thought it was too dangerous. There was a tree ha maybe hanging overhead. For collapses, or, they're yes. sticking out of a cliff. Or the cliff itself is already fractured and hanging mm -hmm. two, three inches uh, away. You know, we, we've done a bunch of excavations wearing hard hats because we've been, you know, worried about some and stuff coming down. And just to be clear, down. you're not allowed, people, the average person is not allowed no. to be digging in a cliff. No, you absolutely. So that is something for the museum and. Now, you know, that's up to that property owner. And, okay. So that Got is it. that is entire. Now there is some argument there too. So you know the Maryland DNR might try to say that they own the first foot of of everything. So I, I don't believe that it's the property owner. So you know the museum will research who pays taxes on that property and reach out for permission. I would say our success rate of actually being able to quarry a specimen is somewhere around twenty twenty five percent, and that is due to either the property owner saying no. Hmm. Or by the time we've been able to find out and get in touch and the property owner's gotten back with us, it's deteriorated out. Hmm. Or uh, by the time all that's happened, uh, you know, just nature. The hmm. waves have hit it, you hmm. know, uh, it has fallen out into the bay. Or somebody else has now come along and dug it out. Hmm. So we have a pretty low success rate um, with actually being able to get permission for stuff. Um, now, if it hits the beach and it's in a block, okay, that's a slightly different story. But then, you know, if the rest of it's up in the cliff, now you got to worry about trying to get permission for that. But we've been lucky that there have been over the years a number of uh, uh, people who have just been great. We would, we would be able to call from the beach mm. to the landowner and they'd be like, yep, go get it. Wow. So, yeah, we've been very fortunate. So we haven't got – let's get into this. Can you describe – what these creatures were like, what the Miocene creatures that are being found here in the mm -hmm. fossil record, what kind of animals were these? Okay. And how can you relate them to animals we have today if someone doesn't know anything about, you know, ancient and ancient okay. creatures? So again, this was a uh, inland sea. So depending on the water depths, what, what kind of creatures would have been here. Uh, but there was a tremendous amount of stuff. Um, sharks. And, and the reason why sharks are the number one fossil 
uh, found in the world is one shark can lose over 20,000 teeth in its lifetime. So that's why wow. there's so many shark's teeth here is this was a fully marine environment or at least um, salt. <laughs> there's actually one layer to the south where, where it actually is switched the freshwater and brackish and then switched back again. So all of this was, is a marine environment. So you have a lot of those things. You've got whales. You've got all these different species of sharks. You've got dolphins. You've got rays. You've got everything that you would find basically uh, in the ocean today, except things are a little flipped. Megalodon, uh, huge. Uh, could have been. Now, again, again, that's a shark. Yeah, the Megalodon's that super predator shark. Uh, it's reaching its maximum size after our time period here, but it easily was in the 40 to 50 foot range okay. in the Miocene, easily. So um, an enormous great white type thing. Yeah, but even even a little, we, we think, you know, we think even a little thicker. Mm. Um, and then the whales, though, are much smaller. So Smaller than our, our oh, absolutely. whales and, today. And, Fascinating. Uh, much smaller and smaller than the megalodon at this time. Wow. So the biggest. So the sharks would have been eating all these whales. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, and they were, you know, so when you see Discovery Channel now of a, of a uh, great white, you know, uh, coming up and, and slamming into a um, seal and then circling it and waiting it for it to die, uh, megalodons didn't have to do that to even whales. They would slam into a whale and eat you alive like a, a lion would a zebra. <laughs> they didn't care. Their, their teeth are super thick. Uh, they, they have a huge splayed uh, uppers. They have tremendously wide lowers that were just meant to grab me. You're pointing to a tooth that's like literally the, almost the size of my hand yep. here. So that's a large upper. So that is designed to basically pull out hunks of flesh. Mm -hmm. And you know when, when you slow down any shark's bite, you, you notice that the bottom teeth go in and hold and the top teeth actually come down twice hmm. to just chunk out uh, pieces of flesh. Now we have seen... Uh, damage on on whales preserved here, where they did hit the flippers, uh, hmm. they, they did hit um, the, the tail. So you know maybe they were trying to disable them as well as like what, what a great white would do to a seal. But these things that the, their teeth are built totally different than a great white, um, and they were just made to just chew everything up, the bone, everything. So cool. Um, so you know uh, the biggest whale I think that's ever been found along the Calver Cliffs is somewhere around thirty feet. Uh, wow. Great white would have easily been really small compared to today. Yeah, so fascinating. Um, and and the, the difference between whale and dolphin is is literally just body length. Huh. So I think the line in the sand is somewhere around twenty four feet. So hmm. you, they talk about killer whales, but they're actually dolphins. Hmm. So there really is no biological other than length. Oh, to I didn't say know that at all. Whale versus dolphin, um, and the dolphins around here at this time. Uh, changed variously. They, they were totally experimenting with different body types. So in the early uh, Miocene, the Calvert part. So when we talk about Calvert cliffs uh, broken up, it's actually three different ge um, geological units. The oldest is the Calvert. Where we're situated and, and where Matawaka is, is in the middle or the chop tank formation. And then the earlier um, the period that's about eight to 10 million years is the St. Mary's formation. So in the earlier Calvert formation, almost all the dolphins had these extremely long snouts. Uh, if you saw it today, you might think that's a, that's the weirdest looking dolphin saw, um, mm. swordfish combination mm. you've ever saw. And there was a whole oh, family. That's a good way them. to visualize that. There's a whole different clad of those things. And then they stop. 
Hmm. And then things get more modernish looking, but still a little bit longer than the average uh, in, in, in their snout, uh, the front part, their nose. And then, um, but even in, during that time, you've got ranges of, of dolphins that are over 20 feet uh, to little tiny adult dolphins that are only four foot long. So cool. And some are focusing on fish and others have big conical teeth. Like uh, the first time you see it, you're probably thinking, my God, that has to be a crocodile or something, but it's not, it's a dolphin. Hmm. So, you know, what is that eating? Hmm. You know, is that eating other dolphins? Is that eating just bigger fish? Was it fast enough to catch that fish? Um, and and it's really, it's really cool. All it's the extremely different, cool. And, you know, the, the neat thing for fossil hunters now is that the first hundred some years that this area has been collected has all been the northern third. Hmm. So, you know, the, the Smithsonian started coming down here in the 1800s. They would literally rent a, a wagon and mules and, and, and camp on any farmer's property who had water access and would let them. And then they collect for two, two weeks and then take it back. This was undeveloped down here. There was not, there were wharves here. So you had, you know, something from your plantation to get to the wharf, but there was no big road coming all the way down. It was quite a trek. So until the 40s or 50s, when this place, these places started to pop up, none of this had been really collected by anybody who had any scientific background. So uh, what we do know is that there seems to be a much greater diversity hmm. of animals at the north and that that diversity is changing and decreasing. Uh, so they're switching over, but they're also less in number the further south you get. Uh, but if you find a skull of something, you know, mid-county further down, you've got a real good shot of it being something new to science. Mm. So that that's the cool part. Have you found anything new to science? <sighs> so I've got two things that, um, knock on wood, will, are going to be written up as new in this uh, booklet that the uh, Stephen Godfrey, the paleontologist at the Marine Museum, is working on. So he realized a couple of years ago that nobody has done a recap of any of the animals found down here in, in the last hundred years. So he thought, oh, I'll write a book. Well, now we're up to three. Hmm. So he's already put one booklet out there. The second booklet is going to review uh, dolphins, whales, and things like that. And I've, I've found potentially uh, a species of something called uh, Squalodon. It was an ancient uh, kind of whale. So when, when whales developed... Wait a second. I was going to ask you. <laughs> Your face looks stunned. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you that maybe this would be a good time to go into a story. At that time, uh, we, uh, we, we were camping at, at uh, Matawaka, and I had arranged that day uh, to go meet... Uh, the Calvert Marine Museum uh, to, to inspect something that I had found. It was a whole string of a, a, a dolphin vertebrae in the cliff. And I was really excited about that, but I wasn't going to meet them till late morning. And I had some time available, so I went up um, to the northern part of the county. So I went down to the beach that day and, and really wasn't having a, a great deal of luck. Um, there was a, a section of cliff that had come down. And I had been told over the years that when you see this kind of reddish sand, this, there seems to be this one pocket of stuff uh, that these critters now, whether it's a, a layer of sand due to a, a beaching event or something else, uh, that seems to be a hotspot for these things. And I decided, well, you know, here's where I'm going to take a break. And yeah, you know, you know, sh should I take another walk? Should I 
uh, try to rush back, you know, because I, I was really excited about uh, getting down there and, and meeting with the paleontologist because this was going to be the first thing that I've ever gotten, you know, that uh, a museum to ever come out and collect. Um, and then I, I, don't, I don't know why I did. I, I just put my backpack down there. And I've done this once before, you know, once later where sometimes you just feel like, okay, you're, you're supposed to just stop here. You're supposed to just stop and kind of get yourself reset and um yeah sometimes it feels like you know i know this sounds a little hokey but yeah you're meant to take a breath here you're meant to just stop and somehow get yourself reconnected and um yeah that's what happened and i put down my backpack and then started looking around and then i found one of these squalodon teeth and it just it just blew my mind because I'd been looking for one of these for years and it, it was it was big. So um, and I started scooting around a little bit more and, and then started finding more bone of this thing and realized, oh, my God, I've got the back of, of the skull uh, to one of these critters. And then uh, looked up in the cliff and I could see what I thought was more bone um, sticking out. And I just I, I, I probably squealed like a little kid. Squalodon was probably a, a larger sized dolphin. Um, it's one of the it's one of the true uh, original. What a when the land mammal that went back into the water, and that's what whales were. They were a land mammal that went back into the water. They think it was some kind of dogish, wolf-like kind of creature that had the dual roots in the back of its teeth, and then as they would get closer, these roots would merge. Um, so the original transition from a land mammal to go back to the sea probably happened around 45, 50 million years ago. So some of the best fossils for that are over in Egypt and things like that, you know, called the walking whale. But a lot of them had that same dentition. So the bigger ones like Bacillosaurus and other things had very similar, but they were more of like a long, elongated lizard uh, kind of looking thing. And they actually called it a lizard and it's not. Uh, but um, more and more whales... Even when they were uh, becoming um, filter feeding, the, their teeth were still there. They're still vestigial little teeth that eventually just stop. Uh, there's a whole clad of stuff uh, from the Oligocene, uh, especially if, if people, uh, shark's teeth hunt down in uh, the Somerville, South Carolina area. It, you know, most of the dolphins down there still retain this kind of dual root. Uh, kind of thing. And they're all different sizes, all different shapes. Again, you know, nature is just experimenting with body types, but that's how the dentition really still worked for a very long period of time until it transitioned for most dolphins to these single uh, peg-like teeth. And, and part of that is just the wear. You know, it's, it's, it's just one of a structural flaw with the killer whales. Those teeth just wear down. Uh, and modern dolphins don't have that disadvantage. And Squalodon definitely did. A lot of the teeth that you find from Squalodon have been heavily worn. So we're thinking that is from, you know, chewing on heavier, um, larger animals. So, and where the dolphin teeth now are more for, made for catching fish, not letting something slippery slide out. And then Squalodon eventually has uh, two upper and two lower tusks. Uh, tusk tooth that's that sticks straight out not true tusks in the sense of an elephant but just these straightforward uh teeth uh, it probably was gray on the top probably had a white belly uh but it was just a a nasty uh looking dolphin it just um very large paddles from from uh, some of the fossils that i think have been found 
and this thing um, could still smell. So I'm not. We're not exactly sure. So all whales eventually have lost the sense of smell, but this guy still was able to do it. So is it something that's feeding on carrion? Uh, is it something that is potentially tracking fish? Uh, because schools of fish, I mean, this might sound a little funny, fart. And you can, your sense of smell is good enough, you can follow big schools of fish by coming up and smelling where, where is that, where is that coming from, and then go after them. So these things were able to not only smell, but also echolocate too. So these were, were multi-dimensional creatures, but they are, they are losing out. So I'm not sure if it's because maybe the maybe there's a pod dynamic that other dolphins have developed and these guys are more solitary. You know, that's something I guess we're just going to have to continue to guess at. But that's what has made, you know, uh, dolphins so much more successful with with feeding and, and staying up on things than whales because of that pod dynamic. And I, I knew I had something special from everything that, that I knew about them. Uh, I knew this was something different. You know, you can find all these different whale teeth and porpoise teeth. Uh, you cannot tell uh, a species by the tooth, except for Squalodon, because they are dual-rooted, and then they merge as they go forward in, 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 in the dentition. So I knew it was something. I knew it was, I knew it was Squalodon. And from all the other Squalodon teeth I'd ever seen, these were much bigger, not, not just... Um, not really necessarily in the blade or the chewing surface, surface of the tooth. The roots were immense. And then these, um, the size of the, the skull pieces I was finding was, it was at least double the size of what a normal squalodon would have been. Now, this is where you get the squalodons. You know, is it male? Is it female? You know, could it be a large adult? You know, hell, we had Andre the Giant. So, I mean, you never know uh, what it could be. And, and luck really played a good part here because... Um, the person at the time at the Virginia Museum of Natural History did his doctorate on Squalodon. So we were able to tell uh, pretty much right away that there, there was something special about this thing. Uh, but because it had fallen out and we, were event we, the museum, was able to go out and eventually recover most of the pieces of it, um, we knew we had something. But we didn't have those pieces I talked about earlier. We didn't have a lot of the, uh, uh, the ear bones. We didn't have any of them. But we had a tremendous amount of the skull, and it took the museum years. So, you know, when you're a hundred years ago, uh, a paleontologist would have found one bone and made a paper about it and said, This is a new species. Uh, nowadays, with, with all the science around it, um, you know, the reputation, the, the, the grant money, all that involved, um, you really want to make sure that you're absolutely right. So, you just don't name something just because you think it is. Uh, and because Calvert Cliffs is some of the best Miocene exposure, well, now you got to compare it to any place around the world that also has that. Japan has it. Belgium has it. Uh, Italy has it. So you want to make sure you check in with all these other places to make sure that they don't have something sitting in a drawer somewhere uh, that maybe was published or named and you don't know about it because it was such a small piece of literature at the time. Uh, but we were able... Uh, to identify this as something new based not only on the teeth or the, and the size of the skull, uh, but a lot of the positioning of the bones in the skull. Very different uh, than what um, Calvertensis is. So this is probably going to be a tweener species. So there's a much older, larger um, squalodon, and then there's the Calvertensis, and this one kind of fits in the middle. Uh, that's, 
I think where the research is right now. So I'm very excited to see, you know, if, if this does in fact get named, I'm hoping that it does. And it, it took over 20 years for, for the Marine Museum to be able to, to properly research this and, and to agree with it. So, you know, that was one of these things where sometimes um, I found, you know, when you're out walking on the beach, sometimes you just get too caught up in you know, wanting to find something or getting inside your own head or thinking about things. And sometimes when you just slow down and just let it happen, it'll happen. Will, um, it, will you have your name on it? Uh, under penalty of death, a friend, a paleontologist, to do exactly that. I've asked him to, to name it after uh, my family's name of Murdoch, which actually means sea warrior. No way. In, in so it'll be term. Squalodon? Yeah. Uh, Murdoch? Murdochius or something like that, yeah. So it'll be Squalodon Sea Warrior. Yep, shark tooth Sea Warrior. Wow. Yeah, so that's what Squalodon means, is shark tooth, because of the, the cusps on it. So I actually have... Uh, cast of the of two of those teeth here that the museum gave me from that critter. So it's possible that you're the only human being in human history, or at least in modern human history, that uh, set some had took a, 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 a meditative moment, set your backpack down, and noticed something and found an entire species of animal that no one else knew existed. We've had a well with, with again the the. The doctor over at um, Virginia Museum of Natural History. Um, he had a Dooley. feeling there's a bunch of these squalodons. We had pieces. Oh, okay. So he he had several pieces uh, uh, pieces of these things, but this was by far the best example. So they had always surmised that there was something oh, uh, cool. kind of fitting this in, and now you know that was 2001, and just last year. Um, somebody found something that's either the same size or maybe even a little bigger mm. than the one I found uh, that's also about um, a million and a half years older. Mm. So all the literature up to this point says that this thing uh, kind of died out before the Calvert ended. Well, this pushes that this find is associated. It's not it's not just a random tooth that might have been deposited, redeposited. Uh, this is actually more of more of a very large squalodon that might add more to this. It might end wow. up being the same kind of species as mine. It might be something different. Uh, so, yeah. It, that's well, congratulations. What's, that's what's, will, will it be on display at the museum? Uh, so... Like you said, there's only so much room in the back rooms and in the front in the show area. Yeah, the, the, the issue with the museum is that it, it is such a small, mm -hmm. uh, small area. And it's not just that the, um, it's not as simple as it sounds. It's mm -hmm. not the paleontologist just deciding, hey, I'm going to wheel this out here today. Um, it, it's got to go through a whole process um, of approvals, multi-stages, multi-different um, divisions of the museum, the exhibits department, you know, how are you going to word it? How are you going to do this? How are you going to prepare it? How are you going to announce it? Um, so I have no idea what the intent's going to be because there's, there's going to be, I mean, he's naming, I, I guess, close to 20 new species in this book wow. coming out. So um, it would be nice if there was some mm -hmm. way to just represent all of them, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I don't I, I don't see how they're going to be adequately able to do it. And then how do you pick the one or two out of 20? And um, so, you know, that now they, they are looking at possibly creating a whole new building for paleontology at the, at the Marine Museum. Super cool. That was a hot topic about two years ago, and it seems to have cooled off. So I, I don't know what, what happened to that idea. But 
they have the the, the, the Calvert Marine Museum is incredible. Oh, so, it's awesome! You know, to get down there and get just a tour. for anyone traveling through Maryland area, um, it's awesome. It's yeah. got the it kind of does natural history, ancient natural history with the fossils. It does mm-hmm. modern what you got right now, and then it does like maritime history. Yep, you got watermen culture and you know old time boats yep. and stuff like yep. that. And it's cool. It's yep, a very world. very and very classy museum. It's they, really they've cool. done a really good job. Their their claim to fame is that they're the only museum in the United States that actually has two lighthouses hmm. because they actually do own the Cove Point Lighthouse and then they have the Drum Point that was moved down there. That's cool. So yeah, it's a beautiful little museum. Beautiful. Uh, I just wish there was more of a rotation of 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 things. Display. Yeah. Oh yeah, that for, makes sense for you know for the paleo stuff. But um, you know, it, you never know what's going to be in the prep room. So mm. and that's always staffed with volunteers. It's yeah, like yeah. Any, so they've got a. Um, Double-sided window yep. as you move through the exhibits. They have a double-sided window where you can actually watch a paleontologist working. You got it's like a little lab, yep. and you can watch the paleontologist. That we went and there was no one working that day, yeah. but uh, you can watch them work on fossils. Yep, so it's a paleo prep lab, and that's all volunteers. Okay, for the average Joe like me, switching gears a little bit, you find something on these Chesapeake Bay beaches. How do you like such as one of these scallop shells here on our on your desk here? Mm-hmm. How and then right next to it you've got clam shells. Mm-hmm. How do you know that it's a fossil and not just something that's mm-hmm. the past two hundred years or a hundred years? Because um, at first we were thinking, you know, my girlfriend found one of these uh, vertebrae pieces from a from a whale bone that we we took to the museum and we had them ID. That is of a black color, so we knew that the black denotes that you're looking at a fossil but then aren't there ones that are red aren't there ones that are white like how do you yes. know what what's in your hand is millions of years old as opposed to a few hundred so unfortunately the diversity of shells here so you know what what's preserved in the chesapeake bay is over 400 different species of shells hmm. what is active in the chesapeake bay now is i believe less than 20 Hmm. So, you know, the scallops of the Chesapeake Bay, they are down at towards the mouth where it's more salty. So if, if there's a scallop shell up here, it, no. It's ancient. It, it's ancient. Okay. Uh, most of the clams here. Um, these are, these white ones here are fossils? Yep. Okay. So a lot of the times, here's an example of one, where the, the white of the shell is what's underneath, and then you still have a little bit of that original kind of grayish or, or tan outline. Mm-hmm. So almost everything here, and this is something I point out on my tours, is if you're looking for bones, um, you're looking for black, you're looking for brown. Uh, as, and, and for teeth too, and you'll notice with the teeth, the root is usually uh, the thickest part of the tooth, and then it's also going to be uh, a slightly different color than the enamel of the tooth. So you're looking for quick color change. Uh, almost all, 99% of a shell you find up here um, that is not an oyster, um, is most likely, you know, something from the Miocene to somewhere between wow. 10 to 15 million years old. So, so it's, so it's it loaded. Just, you just need to know a little bit about natural history to for some of this. It's some of it's IDing like that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, unfortunately, almost These fossilized barnacles are absolutely the coolest. Yeah, and they love, and it's a repurpose. So it's a story. So, you know, here you have something that's on a, sca- you know, these barnacles are on a scallop that is traditionally a deep water shell. So this critter died got pushed in near shore. Why do we know near shore? Because it's a barnacle. It needs to live in that, you know, that changing tidal environment. Oh, and these barnacles love um, the scallops. Uh, just to because make it's their a, home of a dead scallop? Because it's a flat 
broad surface. They get to spark out, uh, colonize. And, you know, think about it. The scallop is the world's first superglue. So, you know, these scallop shells are so thin. I mean, we're talking millimeters sometimes that they just break so easy. But um, So if you're walking along the beach and you see a piece of barnacle sticking out, odds are when you pick it up, it's probably attached to, uh, to one of these... Uh, uh, scallop shell. And so what you just said there, I think is so neat because like you said, you're seeing a bit of a story because you got two lives that have crossed paths. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it very briefly, but you didn't elaborate on sometimes you'll find bones with like shark teeth yes. scratched through them. So that's really cool. If you want to elaborate on that, because I, the first intro to fossil hunting for me was I interviewed a guy out in Kansas who is, uh, so they're in the Cretaceous yes. period out there. Um, digging for creatures that inhabited uh, an ancient inland sea over mm -hmm. there. So uh, I had never thought, this is before I started looking a lot into fossil hunting, but um, I had never really thought about finding these stories because he would say he would find some fossils like of these giant fish. I think one of them is called a Zai. Ah, I'm yeah, not gonna remember. it's this giant saber-toothed fish thing. Yeah, and yeah. they would find a little fish inside of it. Yep. And so- that is just so neat, finding these stories in the fossils. Do you have, is there anything that you found that you kind of, other than what you just showed me with the um, scallop barnacle, where you found these, because, you know, I'm also, I'm interested in trapping and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. when you're reading, you're reading the landscape. And I love that element. Like, oh, a bobcat walked right here. You're mm -hmm. reading footprints. Yep. So to read, to find the story in something from millions of years ago, yeah. God, that's neat. So yeah, that, that's that's what that's one of the things I really enjoy uh, about fossil hunting is, you know, here's something that, you know, even before <laughs> humans were around, here's something that's still there that you can pick up. And, and if you're listening, you, you can hear that story. So um, you do find, a, I pick up all the bone that I see because, um, you never know, you never know what it is. Uh, a lot of times I've been surprised picking up what I thought was a fragment of bone. I turn it over and it's actually, uh, a jaw section to mm. something you'd see, see the sockets in it. Um, I, most of the bones that I've picked up down here that, that tell a story, uh, are either shark bitten, uh, or are arthritic. So that you know either, you know, a shark ate this critter. Now, whether it killed it and ate it, you don't know. Uh, but uh, some, so you see some of the arthritis on some of these bones. So what do you, so you see like a buildup between joints or something? Yeah, so you'll see a buildup around the uh, uh, the end. So we call the um, the end of the vertebra, the, those round growth plates, epitheses, you know, or we call them cookies. So as, a, as an animal gets older, that's usually where um, that stuff starts because they, they, you know, they have... Uh, discs in between, just like we do. And if those herniate, they get broke. Uh, there's a really couple nice examples at the museum where something was actually compression fractured and it actually crushed the bone in and then it healed. Um, when I find stuff like that, I've donated it to the museum. So I've got a couple where the, where the rib has actually broken, moved, and then you can see that knot where it's healed together. But almost all the bone down here, if, if you look at it, it, it actually tells a story because sharks... Um, I'm not sure how he, how far he got into it when you interviewed the guy in Kansas, but Kansas has given some a really good example of shark feeding behavior. Well, sharks are very similar to to, to owls and birds of prey in that they they will gobble their food, um, and they will digest it, but they mm -hmm. can't pass it. Mm -hmm. So uh, these big pieces of bone they cannot excrete it; they've got to vomit it up. So oh my a lot, God. So yeah, a like lot the of, owl pellet. Is what, exactly. Is what you're saying. So wow. a lot of the bone down here. 
uh, actually shows, you know, the the damage from the acid in the stomach. No. Yeah. So you can find fossil bones that have lived in the stomach of a whale for a while. Or yep. sorry, the stomach of a shark for a while. Yep. So wow. they'll, they'll sit in there, get eaten. and then How do you see the, that acid? Uh, well, it's you can really see how it's just kind of smooth. Wow. You know, th there should be a lot of, you know, so they, these oh bigger God, bones, you can cool. see how you've got the final finish on it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not a whole lot of scraped up. And these are probably jaw pieces because the hollow inside where the marrow would have been. But even here, you might have a, like a little ding of a, of a shark tooth damage oh there. But God, these, are, cool. these are all bite-sized pieces because that's exactly what they are. They oh, were, that's why they're all broken up. So, they, so you're pointing to like shards. Yeah, so these are all small pieces of bone. You know, this is a rib. And you can see, you know, even that's a little pitted. So oh when God. you don't have this smooth finish, uh, most of the time, or where it's really pitted up, um, it could be, you know, a, a problem with its uh, fossilization proce process, but more likely it's due to being eaten. God, and, and worn then, down by stomach acid. And then vomited up. God, that's cool. Yeah, so. That is neat. Thank uh, you for that tidbit. That uh, is cool. My girlfriend's going to absolutely love that. <laughs> Some of the, the cooler, uh, uh, one of the things that paleontologist is really interested in is uh, um, the, the copper light down here. And, and we are attributing most of the copper lights that are found uh, is that to be- poo? Yes, fossilized. Copper light means fossilized Fo poo. Yeah, no matter what species you are, fossilized poo is called copper light. Uh, and, but most of the copper lights we find down here, we attribute to um, uh, the crocodiles that were here. And the, there were giant crocodiles here. These crocodiles were saltwater crocodiles that would Me. have been 20 plus feet. Hmm. So we do find most of the time a lot of their shed teeth uh, but they're um, hey, you know, my girlfriend made me bring a few things here that I wanted to show you. Okay. I think we, I think we found a, or she found a fossilized. Um, um, oh, remind me the word for the a plate, like on a turtle. Oh, the ray or a scoot. A scoot. Okay. So the little plate. So I'm wondering if maybe that's from the crocodile. Yeah, we'll take a peek at it. Yeah. So most of the. Uh, copper lights that we find down here we attribute to crocs and uh, a lot of them do have stuff in it so i've got two up there where actually somebody's dug out something so you know it, it's it's the whole circle of life so you God. know when, when they poop you know it's going to fall down to the bottom and crabs and other things you know they're not digesting everything that, so fossil fossils inside fossil scat so yeah we have found <laughs> uh feathers in them no uh, they have found uh little strings of fish vertebra uh, this one had something chewed out. Another one, actually, you can see where they were scratching it, trying to get to it. So most of it's probably from crabs or something else just kind of poking along. Oh but yeah, all these things are getting repurposed. So, you know, the scallop shell getting repurposed by the barnacle. Some of these clams will get bored uh, by the, the little worms. And then they're using uh, the calcium from the shell for the worms to make their little holes and, and their little tubes. So, you know, so much of this stuff gets reprocessed. Uh, because nature will recycle itself God, as, as awesome. best it can. So, you know, it's one of these things, if you realize it, um, it's still, you know, it's going on. So there, God, there are stories is, to be told. This is so cool, man. Cool. Um, well, you did allude when we talked on the phone, we're changing gears completely, okay. Okay. that your wife is into like paranormal ghost hunting yes. stuff. Because I absolutely <laughs> love this kind of stuff. And I... I, well, yeah. Did, did you check out the Duffy's Cut link that I sent I you? I purposely didn't because okay. I wanted you to describe uh, Duffy's okay. Cut. All right. So are you into, do you believe, are you into ghost stuff as well? Um, it, oh, okay. I'll just say this. 
that your podcast mm-hmm. is going to be the beginning of maybe four, maybe even five podcasts about the Chesapeake Bay. Okay. What I'm learning is I'm going to be interviewing a waterman. I'm going to be interviewing a um, a living historian who does all about the history of the pirates here. Okay. All of these people have a very rich, um, I don't know if I want to say belief, but a rich uh, interest in especially ghosts okay. and history and the paranormal. And I just think that the there's something about the bay that has a lot of it. I and love, I'm like, I love it. A <laughs> lot of things that we found when we were ghost hunting is it seems like the more uh, reoccurring would be something about water, either the proximity to water or maybe there there's a well in the house or on the property. Uh, Point Lookout Lighthouse is is supposedly the most haunted lighthouse in America. And, and like I said, where we're out at Calvert, it's the uh, Chesapeake Bay and the Patuxent. Well, Point Lookout is the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac. So that's the nec- next river over. Uh, one of our friends down here was the, uh, um, for the longest time, uh, in charge of the Point Lookout Preservation Society. So we we got to spend a lot of time in there. We've had a lot of weird things happen in there. Like what? Um, and most of them, believe it or not, would happen in the daytime. Hmm. So uh, the loudest thing we ever had, we were we were setting everything up um, upstairs. We were all just, I forget what exactly we were doing. I think we were just kind of, you know, looking through the place, making sure that, you know, everything was closed. It, it would get burglarized a lot. Kids would just break in to break in. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, there weren't any animals or possums or raccoons. And so we're all upstairs and we had set everything up downstairs and you just heard this incredible boom. It sounded like somebody had just flipped over the uh, tables we had brought and put all our equipment on. We're like, son of a... And we went down there, nothing. And, you know, and we knew that, you know, this place might be. So we had somebody, <laughs> when it happened, we had somebody rush to the, the, to the top of the house to look out to see if somebody was running out. Good idea. And um, no, just this incredible loud sound. And you got down there, everything's where it was. We have now, no idea. When you said noise. set stuff up, I mean, you guys are deep into this. You, yeah. So you guys actually do paranormal research? Uh, we haven't done it for probably at least, oof. I forget how long. So we had one of our founding members pass away, and that kind of made the group. You know, it was it was hard for everyone to get back together mm. after that. So we really haven't done anything with it for probably close to ten years. Okay, uh, it's been a long time. But you know, we did this before all this stuff ended up on TV, mm-hmm. and then we got roped into doing something on TV, and oh, it really? was just oh, it was a horrible experience. They wanted you to say anything. Oh, they're and, making it all corny. Uh, well, no, Faking I mean, it that, up? yeah. Mm. They, they they want drama and not you know what we're necessarily finding so um yeah it, it i'm glad i'm glad we stopped when we did but we Good went thinking. all over the the east coast it was it was really a lot of fun um but you know we, we stayed in what now used to be called the fishing shack down there at point lookout and now i think a ranger lives in there full time in the past you'd be able to rent that and we rented it one night and, you know, it's, it's a very small place. So my wife's in one room. I'm in one room. My friend's in another room. Actually, I'm on the couch. I kind of drew the short straw. And, you know, it, you know how when you're in a dream sometimes you, you hear something and you kind of incorporate it into your dream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm laying out there and I'm hearing this noise and I'm just, I'm just ignoring it. And then my wife came out and she's like, do you hear that noise? It was like, oh, that's just the dishes rattling. And I said that kind of like in half asleep. And then I thought, that doesn't make any sense. And I came up to, she looked at me, I looked at her, and the noise just stopped. 
in the kitchen. But it sounded just like the dishes were all rattling. And we went out there and looked around thinking, okay, there's going to – because I'm always – I will try to blame a squirrel or a rat for anything. And we couldn't find a damn thing why that, why that racket was going on. And as soon as we acknowledged it, it stopped. So that was really weird. Uh, you, you hear – you know, I, I, had a, I had a memory surface a few months ago where I was – we used to go up to Vermont to go skiing. And we'd stay with my mom's friend out in the country like thick woods. And um, I was her son who was around my age and they had two beds in that room. So he's sleeping in one, I'm sleeping in the other. And I just had this memory surface about going over there to, to, to ski in the winter. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night being like, Kyle, why are you doing that? Like, what's that noise? Is your dad outside like hammering? And I ha- kind of have a memory of the, drawers just slamming going doo, 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 uh-huh. doo, in his room and then and i was so weirded out but like you said half in a dream and the next morning i was like kyle what the fuck happened with <laughs> what's happening in your room and he just had no idea what i was talking about i was like god we've had a number of strange experiences there we we camped um one time and the beds are actually nailed um so Point Lookout, I'm not sure how much you know about the history of the place. Zero. So Point Lookout was uh, in the Civil War was a prisoner of war. Wow. So and it's right on the Potomac. So you know it's a Union prisoner of war camp. You've got the Confederates there. They can see Virginia. You can't get to it. You will die. Union camp. So the unions, the Union army is holding the Confederates prisoners, and they were brutal to mm. them. They had them penned in a yard. Um, they had to stay three feet from the yard. Uh, and it, it's on a little peninsula, so it gets incredibly cold. The mosquitoes, everything there, um, and the, the, the Union soldiers would drop blankets within that red zone. And if they went for the blanket, they shot them. So I mean, it was it was a very brutal place. Um, I think they in uh, had to dig up the bones. Um, I think the third time is where they finally moved them inland because of the erosion of the Chesapeake kept uncovering the mass graves. Uh, for, for for those uh, Confederate soldiers, so it's got a long history. There's a tremendous amount of shipwrecks there. Um, it's just kind of a you know not so pleasant place. There's also another mass grave there of children from I think um, um, typhoid. Mm. I think it's typhoid. Um, so you know that particular campsite has a long history of people camping there and just getting the hell out in the middle of the night. So you know when we were when we were staring staring sta- staying down there, it's basically a one room thing just like this. And on either wall, you know we're in about a ten foot by ten foot. Uh, the bunks are nailed to the wall. My wife heard somebody in that room that night talking, and you know tried to wake me up. And again, once she got me awake, it stopped. And our our friends who were camping with us the next one down heard somebody just walking outside on that deck all night long. Oh my god! So it's got a lot of. Point Lookout has a tremendous amount of ghost stories. What it's famous for is uh, called EVPs, electronic voice phenomenon. Mm. So somebody has claimed to have 22 different uh, voices recorded there because the basement of the lighthouse apparently was also used um, as the field hospital. So, mm. you know, they just, God knows how many limbs got sawed off mm. uh, down there. So it, it's, it's, it's a very cool uh, historical place with a lot of bad juju. Mm. <laughs> Okay. Uh, but back to. Well, um, what? Okay. You said something fascinating very quickly. You said all of these, or the majority of these ghost experiences were around water. That's what. What do you make of that? 
Um, water seems to be a really good conductor of sound and electricity. What do you mean? So it just seems to be a natural conductor. I don't know if it stores energy. Oh uh, my God. I, I don't. I don't know. But we we've come to find that a lot of the places that uh, have been deemed haunted have uh, a water source. Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, you know, yeah. just I'm very into Jungian psychology, Carl Jung's okay. psychoanalysis of dreams and whatnot. But so water is very obviously an intense symbol of the unconscious. So fascinating to think of, you know, uh, uh, you know, water as a threshold, you know. Um, wow. But we're drawn to it as, as human beings. I mean, how, how many percentages of the population are within 100 miles of water? Mm-hmm. You know, now whether that's from just, you know, development and the need, again, you know, the need in colonial times, all the developments were around waters. You know, uh, again, paleontology, where you talk about the Atlantic coastal plain and then it hits um, where, where uh, um, oh, come on, Paul. Um, all, all the towns were built on those falls mm. where the Atlantic coastal plain was only able to get in so far. And when it drilled out, you have these little lips and that's where you put in your... Uh, your mills and everything else just to rely on that natural energy of water. What's well, the scariest so, thing has happened while you guys were doing this paranormal stuff? Um, you know, we've never really been scared. Okay, uh, interesting. But there was um, there was a time in Gettysburg. There's one of these little monuments back in the woods. So just for um, anyone that's not uh, Virginia native or anything like that, Gettysburg is extremely famous area from a very uh, intense war during the civil or battle during the civil war so there's this little place back in the woods again it turns out to be what an area that was used as a field hospital and we were there uh so you know gettysburg at this time would allow you to stay to a certain time at night now they uh uh-uh, because they just have problems with people either defacing things or or digging or or all that stuff so at that time you were allowed to stay till 10 at night and we like to get be out there in the dark um, and it was probably in the thirties. And if you've ever smelled like a dead deer in August on the side of the road, oh, yeah. it's awful. Well, we were walking down to that area and that's what it smelled like. It was just the, the putrid smell of death, but it was December and it had no business being there. And that, that did kind of freak us out. My God. And then, you know, uh, one of the guys who actually, um, we would tag up with now and then, I think, I think either right before that or right after that, you know, I'm talking weeks, either before or after that, had actually had a heart attack down there. Hmm. So, you know, the place had some, <laughs> in our opinion, had some Thick. bad juju. Yeah. But Thick. yeah, it was, uh, it was, a uh, it was a creepy little spot back hmm. there. And we usually did hear things, you know, like something. Um, but now, um. I had a, my sister and I, the day after Christmas or something like that, uh, maybe seven years ago, had a super intense experience at the Manassas battlefield. Mm. Um, yeah, it'd be long to get into, but uh, yeah, we were in a backfield. We saw, we heard this strange sound, like, and I was like, Maria, what does that sound like? That's my sister's name. She's like, sounds like drums. I was like, yeah, it does sound like drums. And we were seeing, watching this mist kind of rise up and then come back down. And a hawk, flew over us. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I felt like go towards that area in this field. And as we walked into it, we like walked into this ring of mist. I can show you a picture of it. The hawk flew over a blue circle of mist. We walked into it. And the second I stepped into it, 
my sister swung her face around with this terrified face. And huh. both of us were just like, boom, like pressure, like pushing on our backs. And my huh. sister is like, oh, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I was like, are you okay? Like, do we need to get the hell out of here? And she's like, oh, I can't breathe. And then I just out loud, just started saying like, hey, ease up, like ease up, ease up. And that we were still feeling this pushing on us, but it slowly kind of dissolved. And we we're like, ease up, ease up. And then we both kind of like, started kind of feeling like crying. We just felt this like great pain and like a retreating pain. So then I went home and mm. tr researched what exactly happened in that field of the massive battlefield, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and like, and I never knew what, how I felt about ghosts as a kid. I've always yeah. been in, enchanted and enamored by these subjects. But once you have your own experiences, you guys can't really deny it anymore. You know? It, there's something going on. There's something going on. There's something. Yeah, and that, that was our advice to people, you know, what you said. You know, you talk to them. And, you know, that's would be our, you know, people would call us and, and be upset and want to be investigating. We'll be like, have you ever asked them anything? Mm. You know, have you, you know, because a lot of times uh, these things would happen when um, they're doing remodeling. Mm. And, you know, may, maybe, you know, there's different theories on that. Is, is, it an, is it a ghost that's, you know, is it something that's active in there and now you've disturbed it, you've knocked it out? Or is it just a repetitive? Is, was it something that was so traumatic it just will repeat mm. when certain conditions exist? You know, and, and there's no chance to interact with it. Well, we always tell them, well, you know, take the chance. Just say something to them, you know, and just maybe acknowledge them. And that itself might get things to just chill out, relax. Mm. Um, wow. but, you know, the first thing people are like, we need a priest. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> Duffy's Cut, um, I got involved with that because um, it was where I was working at the time. Uh, and this, is, this was a project at, at Immaculata University, um, which is outside of... Uh, uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and, it, and the little the town is called Immaculata, PA, um, where, the, where the university is, and uh, they put something in the paper about where they were going to be looking for these bodies. So I've always been curious with that, and I'm like, you know what? If you need somebody to to help with this, you know, I do stuff with with museums. It's it's totally different field, and you've got a lot more legal things here to deal with. Um, but I'll come and, and try to help you with the field work. So we spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure out where these bodies were, and, and the whole story didn't really make sense. So the railroad for years acknowledged that there was a mass grave at this site, um, but they had tried to say that the whole camp died of, um, I think it was diphtheria, and it doesn't work that way. You, you know, you get sick, you get finally ill, you have uh, the runs, and 50% of the people will die from dehydration, but then the other 50% won't. And people had been calling this particular place uh, Dead Horse Hollow for, for years. The uh, farmers had dumped their, you know, their cows, their horses in there and all this stuff. And they had uh, built around it, but people didn't want to build in it. They, 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 it was just a place that had been avoided for years. Well, it turns out that these, um, the one professor at Maculata had a twin, and I think he's a Lutheran minister. Uh, and their great-grandfather had actually been uh, part of the railroad. Well, when they closed the railroad down, that was one of their big secrets, was everything about this mass grave. So when they closed the railroad down, they, he had, their grandfather had worked for the president and swiped the file. 
didn't tell anybody, but he swiped the file. So I was raised Catholic. Um, but, you know, the more you dig into it, you realize that Catholicism is really just a splash over of some other things to try to get people to. You know, most of the holidays that are Catholics are actually based around some lunar events for other things. Well, Catholics, depending on which deep you get into it, there's something called Ember Nights. So Ember Nights is basically around the change of the seasons is my understanding but it's supposed to be a time when the veil between our world and their world is thinner and if somebody wants to be able to get a message through that's the time they're supposed to do it so there was an event at Immaculata that night the professor was there with somebody else now Immaculata the campus was also part of a revolutionary war battlefield as well so we'll throw that in there so um, they were at the urinal looking out and noticed Coincidentally, these blue lights in the field coming to him. And the one guy said to the other, do you see that? <laughs> it's like, yes, I do. And it just really, and it just came closer to him and closer to him out in the field and then just dissipated. So they thought that was really weird. And he knew that some, and then that's when he researched the Ember Knights and he knew that somebody was trying to get his attention. Uh, he assumed that it was something through, um, the Revolutionary War battle because that was fought there on the campus. But a, a couple weeks later, they actually stumbled across their grandfather's file when they were cleaning out their grandmother's house. Um, and it really went into a lot of detail about this place and everything. And um, he got, and he was a professor of history. So he really dug into it. Turns out it was the most expensive. Uh, mile of railroad put in out in, in southeastern PA. They probably should have built a bridge on it. But what this guy did was went and hired all these uh, Irish workers right off of the boat, brought them in there, and basically told them scrape up all the dirt around here and make it a fill. Well, the, their version was that they all got sick and died. Uh, what most likely happened is that they started to get sick. Philadelphia at this time had had a few cholera ep ep epidemics and were terrified of it. So at the time, there was, um, wasn't a whole lot of law and order. This was around 18, was it 52? Something like that. And you could hire these horsemen to come around and do your work for you. Uh, so these guys, that's what they were called. They were called the East Whiteland, East Whiteland Horse Company. So they were hired guns. So if you needed uh, justice, you wanted to get even, you wanted something done that wasn't exactly, mm, you hired these guys. And... Um, yeah, apparently they went in there and killed the whole camp. So the weird thing is, you know, with them, again, these guys are, uh, he had another history professor helping them. They were able to track back in time all the way to uh, the couple of weeks before the before he started collecting money for the camp to, to hire these guys, uh, three boats that came in of Irish workers down in Philly. So apparently he went down there. None of them spoke English. They would have all been second and third sons. You know, at that time, if you were the firstborn son, you got the property, inherited everybody else, you're on your own. So these were all people, you know, from Ireland fleeing the potato famine. And he went down there, hired them. They got sick. Three weeks later, they're all dead. Nobody's ever heard from them again. So the story was that they'd given them a nice burial and blah, blah, blah. Uh, turns out what they did was they dug a big hole, threw them in it, and then just continued to fill that hole in. And that, and so for all these years, you know, people taking the train, the R5, uh, are literally driving over, you know, this massive grave. The weird thing, ghost-wise, was everything about this said it was uh, all male workers, and that didn't really sound true either. You usually had a cook in camp, um, 
But what really sparked their interest was uh, people in the local community saying that they see something. They, they kept seeing ghosts. They kept seeing blue lights down on the hollow and down in the holler. And uh, but what was seen most of all was the ghost of a woman, sometimes accompanied with a young boy. Um, the, so after years of uh, you know doing experimental digs and actually finding you know the hollowed out posts of the camp, we actually found their cook pot uh, buried on top of the uh, uh, coals. So they, they just covered all traces of their little camp. The weird thing is that camp had been used at least three other times going forward in history as a work camp for the railroad. So you were finding stuff that, you know, so it was a historical thing too. You're finding stuff that doesn't necessarily tie to that, but it tells more about the history. You know, we would focus on areas that we thought just from geographically might be of importance. So we would work with somebody who actually um, was a historian for the railroad who would say, well, listen, you know, d due to where the sun comes up and this and that, they would probably set up a camp here. So let's try here. Uh, the big breakthroughs really happen when we use ground penetrating radar. And that's where we were able to locate uh, the first body that was under an enormous oak tree that probably sprouted not soon after uh, the burial. And uh, it turned out to be a woman. So these people had said for years they'd seen the ghost of, I'm getting chills, uh, had seen this ghost of this woman. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, she was one of the few women on the, uh, um, the manifest for the boats. So these people, uh, what made it interesting um, is they were all from the region called Donegal. And Donegal, uh, um, through whatever breeding that was going on there, they have a uh, very strange tooth anomaly in their rear, in their back lower jaw. And uh, almost everybody here, that, that was eventually uncovered. And they didn't uncover everybody. Uh, they decided to lay, leave most of them in the state. Um, but yeah, they, they all had this tooth anomaly and a few were able to find genetic matches back to their family today. And a, a cemetery donated a mass spot to, to put some of the bodies that were interred there. Uh, but out of the bodies that were exhumed, um, there were fatal injuries. They did not die from a disease. There were wounds to the head, either you know a shovel or an axe, or in the case, of, I think of the woman, an actual bullet hole. So, but this is this is what we do as Americans, is you know the the, the next class of people that comes in, we look down on, and you know for a while there it was the Irish, and then you know what do we do? We use the Irish on the East Coast for the railroad. Well, what do we do out west? Well, we use the uh, uh, Asians to build that portion of the railroad, and you know now these guys have finally gotten permission, and coincidentally this this uh, past month have broken sight on another. Uh, Irish mass grave site. So these have probably happened way more uh, than people want to admit. And, you know, this guy Duffy lived to a ripe old age and, and did this to his, uh, his own people, his own Irish people. My God. Yeah. So a ghost archaeological an archaeological ghost story. Yeah. We we would actually, you know. Did we'll, the haunting stop after this um excavation? Yes. <sighs> People no longer saw the the fuck the, the, the woman who would see this she would see this woman in black either outside her house or sitting in a chair in her house. It stopped. Oh my god. Yeah. 
So yeah, it really seemed. Thank you for these, telling that story. That was incredible. So these people were basically calling from the grave, and he had the he had the documentation. He had the connections. He was a professor of history. He had the file, thanks to his grandfather of being on the railroad. You know, what are the odds of those things all kind of coming together? And My now they're God. now they're working on another another site. Are you going to be digging it at all with that? It's going to be hard between between uh, work. I still work full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, less than full time. I put in about thirty some hours a week, and then now I'm doing these tours. My wife is working full time. Um, she's she's going to school full time. So I I want to, you know, but that's really the third priority. Yeah. On, on my list right now, it's you know whatever I need to do, you know, the happy wife, happy life, and then if I can fit in tours, and then if I have the free time for the other. My God. So I would really like to to go back out. I've tried a couple times to get involved with some uh, Indian archaeological sites uh, that that are nearby me, but. Um, I haven't been contacted back. I guess they don't think it would be a good match with the paleontology piece. Because, you know, a lot of these people want to show up there and do, and then go back and, and raid it. I mean, it's 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 a shame. I mean, the the, the thing that- Did you find the, the Native American sites or you were just trying to be, get I had involved? heard about them in the paper and they okay. were, you know, uh, one is a mile from where I live. You and, tried to volunteer yourself? Yes. Okay. Say like, hey, if you, need, if you need assistance. And it turns out they would have been uh, Indian fishing camps. Fuck, yeah, cool. from what they found in the paper. This so, is in Pennsylvania? Yes. Yeah, so to be clear, we're at your, um, this is where you do your tours out of, but yes, you live in St. Leonard Mount. Yeah, so we still live in, in Southeast Pennsylvania full-time, and uh, there was a fishing. Every now and then, uh, we live uh, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and every now and then after a big flood, it'll cut through this little this little creek called the Manitoni, um, and it feeds into the Schuylkill. It'll uncover you know, uh, uh, an Indian site. So, you know, there's actually a spot in town right off of what used to be our, they used to call it Water Street, but now they call it Industrial Boulevard, where they actually did uncover a couple Indian graves, mm. you know, uh, when they were doing some, you know, building years mm. ago. So there's a little placard there. So, yeah, you know, you forget all these things that were here before This is you. so cool, man. So This has been uh, such an awesome podcast. Oh, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate what, it. So maybe we'll kind of start wrapping it up. What do you, so what I know of you from today's conversation is your extreme interest and passion in ancient fossils, fossil hunting, and now some ghost hunting. <laughs> some parano- what do you think it is? Do you, are you able to uh, express uh, why you might be so interested in these things? I've always had an, had an interest in nature. And, um, you know, the older I get, um, I, uh, I believe in more of a synchronicity or mm. a, uh, lack of real chance, you mm. know, th- things usually happen. Uh, if, if you slow down and just kind of not push, some things will be there right in front of you if you allow them to be. If you don't let your ego uh, get in trouble. So I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I can be a very grumpy, <laughs> very angry person if, if I allow myself to be. But I have learned. Uh, we you know, th- there's all kinds of rules, and each one of us maybe has our own kind of guides and rules and things like that. My karma, you know, I'm a big believer in karma. If I go out of my way 
to try to get even with somebody, I get it in spades. Mm -hmm. I have learned long ago, I just kind of need to just relax and realize that person is on their own journey. And, you know, somehow, some way, you know, they're, they're going to come to that own, you know, their, their own Well, that's conclusion. the rule of witchcraft, right? If you, if you create a spell on someone, it comes back threefold. Okay, good. Yeah, so. and, then there's the, <laughs> and then there's an ancient quote, um, an ancient, I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's Buddhist, but I think Japanese or something, but before seeking revenge, dig two graves. Hmm. So a similar theme. Yeah. It comes back to you. So, yeah. Um, I've, I've so, so why that. do you think you're so interested in, I guess, ancient, like the remains of the ancient, right? That's kind yeah. of the theme, right? Yeah. Because it's ancient animals and then it's ancient bones, like the people element, the ghosts. It's the relics of of like the historical lives of animals and of people. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, just, that, it's, it's just, not really a question, but it, I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of been interested in, in geology and things that took longer. And, you know, I can get on a whole rant about how we're just fixated today with immediate gratification mm. and how that leads to trouble. Mm. You know, I, I think, you know, um, you know, um, I, I guess it's, I, this sounds corny. I guess it started with, when I was a kid that my grandfather um, was uh, non-practicing, but he was a Mennonite and man, he had a garden and, you know, you, you went over there every Sunday after church. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic. He went over there every Sunday after church and, you know, he'd walk you through the garden and, you know, that's when you spent time with him and he raised chickens and he raised cows. And, you know, I learned at a very young age how much effort goes into all these things that, you know, you, you have a responsibility, uh, to these things that if you're going to have a pet, if you're going to have an animal, you're going to raise it for food or whatever, you know, you need to treat those things properly. You know, it takes a long time to get a tomato, Ugh, it takes all summer. To grow it, to plant it, to try to you know to to you know keep it free from pests, but without poisoning everything around you. Mm -hmm. um, life's a delicate balance, mm -hmm. and you know I tell I'm the oldest of four, and I tell my younger brothers all the time, you know you're three mistakes away from having your life just torn apart. And and the sad thing is, they might not be your three mistakes. That might be somebody else. That me that that might be the drunk driver. That might mm -hmm. be somebody. Uh, who you know goes nuts with a rifle? I mean, you never know what mm -hmm. those things are, uh, but life is just very um, fragile. Uh, what's nice about I think the fossil hunting and the archaeology is it, it really allow. Oh, excuse me, it allows these stories to be told now. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the dead can um, speak to you, and you know it, it really is a minor miracle that all these things exist now these things mm. should be should be gone they, they should have rotted and turned turned back to, to the dirt and they haven't and they're here and um you know uh, for me with the that's fossil interesting hunting, the dead can speak yeah. because like we were saying with the so the ghost element literally it seems as though something that's happened in to certain people in history they're trying to tell something and then with these fossils, like we talked about with the story element, the fossils are telling a story. Mm -hmm. So yes, the dead can speak. You know, for, wow. for, for me, um, you know, it shows that, hey, the, the, at some point there was so much water here, all this was underwater. You had enough to support giant sharks and giant whales and all these different ecosystems. Um, and, you know, everyone's toying with, oh, you know, is there global warming or is there not? Well, whether it is or isn't, it's done this before, and it's capable of doing it again. Mm. So, um, you know, I try to 
integrate that on my tours as well as stewardship. You know, I'm always picking up trash when we're on the tours. Leave it cleaner than you, know, than you found it. But uh, yeah, this this just um, it's kind of overwhelming to people, and that's and that's a good thing sometimes to get knocked off to realize that hey, you know what? This is 15 million years old. This is so ancient compared to what you know you have. I was profoundly moved by my girlfriend finding that that bone. That so the whale bone that we took to the museum had them ID mm-hmm. to know that something that's now in our home is 15 million years old. Like I was profoundly moved by that. Like it like for two, three days, I was like up, not really able to sleep, just thinking about that. Like just trying yeah. to contemplate such enormous amount of time. It's like just the fossil is just such a f- incredible um a token or something, incredible monument to the contemplation but of time. They're still so fragile. Mm. You know, you, you you can be there for 15 million years, you pick it up and you accidentally break it. Oh. So, you know, even though you might have the best intentions, you can mm. still it still happens. So, you know, it's it's one of these things to kind of tread light. Mm. Um, I guess, you know, if if you want to talk about spirit animals and stuff, the the one thing that um that I look for when I'm out on the beach is butterflies. And I know that mm. kind of sounds weird. Um, but the Chesapeake Bay is a migratory route for the monarchs and some of these other things. So, you know, they um, come up from Mexico or something, right? Uh, well, they're flying back down. They're, they're being okay. hatched up here and then traveling down. Ah. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky that it turns out, you know, in my house in Pennsylvania, there's a guy who's two blocks away. Who's, who's like the Northeast expert on monarchs. Wow. So last year I got over and actually banded a butterfly. It sounds, that was my face too. Like how the. F, do you band a butterfly? I'm thinking, you know, you get this little tiny metal clip. Now, it's this little tiny, tiny sticker that's maybe maybe a third of the size of your pinky nail, and you put it over one certain part of their oh wing so it doesn't disturb the flight. And then if it's found later on, it has a number on it, and you can find out, you know, you know where was this thing either tagged, meaning, you know, I got to interview caught, this captured. guy. Tell your neighbor I'm going to come <laughs> interview him. So it's either tagged, as in captured and tagged, or uh, he'll raise it. And then put the thing on it. So you can track, you know, where these <laughs> things have flown. Uh, but down here, you get a lot of the swallowtails, a lot of other stuff. So uh, they hang out on the beach because they are absorbing the salts. Oh, fascinating. So, you know, for us, uh, and I mean us, I mean me and my wife, you know, when we were um, at her dad's um, funeral, there was, a, there was a butterfly that just would not stop. Uh, hovering around. So, mm. you know, we kind of key in on that. So, you know, if I'm on the beach and I see a butterfly, that's my sign to slow down, mm. slow down. Now, now, has it ever led me to a big tooth? No, mm. but I don't think it's trying to. I think mm. it's just reminding me to, to slow down, you know, to enjoy. So, you know, a lot of the times when I'm out here um, fossil hunting, um, I kidded about this before we got on um, the blog is, I use it as therapy time just to kind of relax. Therapy time. Di- you know, mm. disconnect, be appreciative, slow down. You know, am I looking for fossils? Oh, you bet. Half the time I'm out here, I'm I'm looking for something for the museum to get as well. So it's not just trying to find, you know, a tooth, you know, on the beach. I'm looking for something that could possibly have scientific value. But to remember to, to slow down and hey, to just Hey, not relax. to mention, not to mention you got the the meditative soundtrack of yes. the surf and the water back to the water. Yeah. Wow. This has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you. Oh, In you're closing, welcome. um, 
some listeners might be Virginians, um, might be around here in, mm-hmm. in the East Coast. If they're interested in coming down to a tour, do you want to give a little bit of a, a summary of what the tours are like and then how to find them? Okay. Um, oh, okay. Um, website address is www.chaptours.org. We chose org because we do uh, potentially want to make this into more of an educational outreach cool. kind of thing. C-H-A-P? Yeah, so that stands for uh, Chesapeake Heritage and Paleontological Awesome. Tours. Um, so that's our website. Uh, right now, I have one of my friends doing tours on Wednesdays, and then I'm available only Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. But if people reach out and, and give enough advance, hopefully I can get a day off of my regular full-time job and do this. So basically the tours, um, they all say 9 o'clock start time. Uh, uh, that's a programming issue. I could not find somebody who would be able to program the start of the tour based on the tide charts. Right. So 9 a.m. does not necessarily mean 9 a.m. It's a default. Starts so, with the tide. Yeah. So basically you're offering um, your guiding service as a fossil hunter. Yes. So basically it's a customized tour. Uh, the goal of my tour is to hopefully um, you won't need me again. So uh, come down here. I'll explain to you why you're finding what you're finding. Answer any questions. We'll go over whatever you know finds that you've already had. We'll talk about you know things to key on. Um, we'll talk about all that stuff, and we'll have hands-on things in the office. That usually takes an hour. It's totally up to you. You know, the more questions you have, hey, we'll hang around. If you don't, uh, then we go hit a beach. I have access to several different beaches where I own property. Uh, most of them are drive up and boom, you're right th- right there on the water. Uh, and then we'll walk. Uh, the most common tour is the two-hour tour. That usually turns into a solid three hours out collecting. So the two-hour tour really turns into a four-hour tour. There's an hour at the beach, and the tour time starts when we get to – I'm sorry. There's an hour in the office, and then the tour starts once we get on the beach. It doesn't include the drive time or anything like that. And if we're having a good time and I don't have to be anywhere, honey-do list or anything like that, it'll, it'll go longer. Um, and then we'll get back. Uh, if the weather's pleasant, we can stay on the beach and we identify fossils. The kids get a little Riker case. To put and you their get stuff to keep in. some. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anything we find, you get to keep. Anything I find, you get to keep. The only issue would be if I, if I found something that I think would be scientifically important, I would ask you to consider donating that to the museum. And then you get a letter from the museum saying, hey, thank you. And here's the... The thing donated. Um, maybe, so cool, man. maybe one out of three tours, we find something that's been uh, uh, worthy enough that's, to go into the permanent pretty collection. Huge, man. Well, I mean, you know, now it's not stuff that you're coming down here thinking about. So, you know, a lot of the things we found recently are actually fossilized pearls. So, pearls. these gooey ducks, these wow. big clams, wow. will actually get a piece of sand back in here where, where they uh, connect. And it's an irritant, and it will form a pearl over time. Fascinating. So we have found a lot of pearls this year. Uh, we do find odd little things. Uh, somebody found a sperm whale ear bone, mm. which we we know is probably a new species mm. because of the locality, because we don't know of one from where we found that. But it's not enough to do anything with. It, Got it. it, w- it will be referenced later on if somebody finds more of it. Or more of, you know, an example of that species. Uh, but we find weird stuff uh, so cool, that man. goes in. And then uh, we'll review the fossils. The three-hour tour uh, goes for at least three. 
and I use a caterer. So we get a box lunch and you pick out in advance, you know, what you'd want. And the caterer tries to source locally as much as possible. So that's an intent. So yeah, you know, uh, they go long. Um, well, you sound like an awesome guide from our conversation today. I'm sure it's, it's gotta be so awesome and educational and fun. So we'll talk about everything on the beach. You know, Mm. we talk about the pirates that have used the bay. We talk about the fossils. We talk about the Indians. We talk about the fishing and the oystering, you know, all that stuff. Well, that's a great way to end. This has been awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, my girlfriend and I were going to come on a tour because <laughs> okay. she'll want to pick your brain. She, she's loving this. She really, really loves this. It's been a, kind of a dream from her childhood heroes. She's from New Zealand. Her childhood heroes mm. were, you know, Indiana Jones, Tomb okay. Raider. So for, to her, for finding that whalebone, she was just like, it's an incredible find for your first trip. Oh, it's going to take years to, to, I'm assuming, to ever get something of that again. All right. Well, thank you, man. You're very welcome. <laughs>